when did I get so old? This is a question that's come across my mind frequently recently, and especially so whenever I go to doctor's visits. There's been a plethora of them, and, and every time I go to the doctor, and probably you have the same sort of encounter, they ask you a series of questions when you get there. And I'm not talking about the COVID questions, which are somewhat obnoxious. You know, traveled anywhere, you got a cough, can you smell and taste things? I always want to go, actually, no, I can't smell or taste anything. I'm coughing. I feel terrible, but I'm here. They've heard that one before, so it's not too funny. But after those questions, the normal questions that come up uh, are, follow a similar pattern, right? What's your name? You know, what's your date of birth, phone number, and address? It even comes up when I, I take kids to the doctor which is usually an adventure because I have enough now where they're like, in birthday, and I have to like, all right, I'll carry the two, and I'm not a bad parent. I know my kid's birthday. I just, there's a bunch of them, and, uh, you know, and then I eventually get there. The purpose of the questions is to make sure the doctor's office knows that I am who I say I am, or that, in the case when I'm taking children, that my children are who I say they are. We come to the book of Matthew in the first couple chapters. He's aiming to do something similar. He, he wants us to know that Jesus is who Matthew is saying that he is. And so what he does for us in these first couple chapters is he, he lays out some proofs. I've, I've tried to put it in your outline in five ways, kind of five ways that Matthew is going to verify Jesus' identity. Uh, but, but really... Um, I don't know how many there are. I'm going to just talk. Uh, there are a few, right? He's going to show us by way of Jesus' genealogy that he is the king who brings blessing to the nations. He's going to show us that by way of Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy. He's going to show us that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting on, the Messiah King, by moving Jesus around geographically and then comparing him to seminal figures in the Old Covenant, like Moses and Israel. Indeed, we'll, we'll discover that even the nations, pagan magi, are finding their way to Jesus. There is verification after verification of Jesus' identity in the opening chapters of Matthew. And it, it continues into chapter 3, as we'll see next week. But this morning, uh, we're just going to concern ourselves with these first two. And the main idea is this, we've already said it, that Jesus is the promised king. And if you want to try to remember more than that, you can remember Jesus is the promised king who brings blessing, the blessing of Abraham, to all nations. And it's in light of that I want to exhort you to come and adore Jesus, worship him. With that in mind, let's pray and we'll get into the text this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship you. We ask this morning that, that you would remind us that if we look inward to ourselves for rest and satisfaction and life, that we will find no sufficiency there. Remind us that if we are to have satisfaction and peace and fullness of joy, that we ought not look into ourselves, but to Christ, 
teach us that the key to life is not belief in ourselves, but belief in Jesus. It's in His wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Matthew uh, pulls the curtain open to his gospel by making an incredible statement in verse 1 of chapter 1. He, he says this, uh, The book of the Genesis or genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so there he has given us his thesis from the jump. This Jesus whom I am going to tell you about brings to us a new beginning. He is the son of David the forever son of David who is going to sit on David's throne. He is the son of Abraham, the one through whom all the blessings that were promised to Abraham are going to find their fulfillment. And then he proceeds to lay out that long genealogy that we often skip over. Abraham, father of Isaac, Isaac, father of Jacob, so on and so forth. And Matthew, after listing all of Jesus' ancestors, or most of them, some of them, tells us that the purpose of his genealogy is not chronological precision, but theological argument. He's making a theological point about who Jesus is. He tells us this in verse 17. You can read it there. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so so Matthew is teaching us that he's actually split all of Israel's history apart into three sections of 14. So you've got Abraham to David. This is the time of the patriarchs, 14 generations. You have the time from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations is the time of the kings. Now you have the time from the exile or to the time of Jesus as the time of captivity. Though the people do return from exile during that period. His point is, is that all of Israel's history is coming to its pinnacle with the arrival of Jesus. Because Jesus is the king who sits the throne of David. We know this from this, this number 14. You go, what, what is with the, the 14 generations? Because if you're sitting there doing math, you go, uh, this would have taken a lot more time uh, to, to get from, from Abraham to Jesus than just the 14, 14, 14. Uh, also, the last 14, there's only 13 names there, so that doesn't quite add up, Matthew. What are you trying to say? And you see, uh, Matthew has intentionally made omissions from his genealogy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's left out certain kings and and other certain people to demonstrate that Jesus is in the royal line of David, yes, but also to get that number to 14. And so the question comes, what is special about the number 14? We say, well, that's the numeric value of David's name in Hebrew. Most Jews would have been able to put that together really quickly uh, because they Uh, took part in an ancient practice called geometria, and it's what people did before the internet. Uh, You would would add up the numeric value of people's names, alpha numeric value of people's names, and you would get a number. And so in Hebrew, uh, there were no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Uh, David's name would just be uh, D-V-D, or in Hebrew, Dalit Vav Dalit. 
And so if you match those up, like if it were our alphabet, the, the letter A would be worth the number one, and the letter B would be worth the number two. If you do this with, with David's name, uh, Dalit, or D, is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Vav, or V, is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So David's name in Hebrew, uh, D, V, D, Dalit, Vav, Dalit, and you do, all right, that's four plus six plus four, and that gives us the value of 14. And so uh, what Matthew is doing is he's saying Jesus is the king we've been waiting on, the forever son of David, the promised messianic king who will bring blessings to the nations. He is the point of all of our history. He's the promised king. Notice too, David's is the 14th name listed in this genealogy. And so Jesus' genealogical resume is presented to us to demonstrate that he is qualified as it relates to his royal heritage to sit the throne of David. What's also interesting about this genealogy, however, is not just who is excluded and left out, but who is included. We've talked about this recently too, so just hang in there. Who is included are some scandalous women that we do not expect to see. Gentiles, right? Uh, one would expect that, so first of all, it's bad form to include women in a genealogy in the first century. It was very rarely done, and so you just wouldn't do it. It was bad form. wasn't going to help you. But these women are included. So you would expect if there are going to be women that it would be you know, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, or Leah, you know, the matriarchs of Israel. But instead, we've got Canaanites and prostitutes and Moabites. Right? You know some of the stories. Tamar, Genesis 38, she's obliged to act in faith and play the part of a hooker to get Judah to fulfill his promise to her. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho who chooses to act in faith and hide the Israelite spies. Uh, Ruth was no prostitute, but she was a Moabite, certainly an outsider. And she comes into Israel by way of her relationship with Naomi, to whom she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And then, if you remember the story, uh, her and Naomi have this plan to kind of persuade Boaz into proposing. And so in quite the risque move, uh, Ruth goes to the threshing floor in the middle of the night and lays down next to Boaz. And he wakes up and he's like, whoa, <laughs> you are not supposed to be here, right? And they have kind of an awkward conversation about how he probably needs to propose to her and redeem her as her kinsman redeemer. And then he says, all right, that's cool, that's great, we'll figure it out in the morning, but, but you need to go before the sun comes up. Because if somebody sees you here, people are going to talk. Then we come to Bathsheba. Bathsheba is taken advantage of by David we don't know about her willingness or her unwillingness as it relates to their encounter. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the event, nevertheless, puts Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, squarely in the same category as these other women. Scandalous outsiders of Gentile background. And so the question comes, why why does Matthew, we've answered the question, why does he exclude some of these people? And we said, theological purpose to show that Jesus is the king, the son of David. So now we come to the question, why does Matthew include these scandalous women? He's put out some of these evil men. He's put in some of these scandalous women. Why are they there? And the answer is to demonstrate 
that the family Jesus comes from tells us about the family that Jesus came for. Jesus saves. And He saves not just Jewish people, but Gentile people. Jesus' people are made up of all who believe. The family of God is comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see that it's always been God's plan to make an international people for Himself from the very beginning. That's what these scandalous women teach us. God loves to save to Himself outsiders and insiders alike. He loves to bring to Himself all who believe. He is gracious and loving. He saves Bathsheba's and Tamar's. He saves scandalous women. He saves evil men like David. He saves murderers and adulterers. He saves all who repent and believe. This is what He came to do. It's why His name is Jesus. Because He brings salvation to His people. If you are here and you are a Christian, it's because Jesus has come and saved you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be adopted into the family of God. You need only repent of your sin and trust in Christ. There is room in Jesus' messed up family for someone like you. Trust me, uh, someone like me, there's room for. There's room for all who will come to Christ. It's Matthew's first kind of verification of who Jesus is. He's the son of David. You see it in his resume. And he's embedded the gospel for us in Jesus' genealogy. He's the son of David who brings blessings to the nations. This is the king you've been waiting for. Moving on, Matthew takes us to the virgin conception of Jesus in verse 18. Look with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, before they had had sexual intercourse, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. See the connection to the genealogy. It's through Joseph, who uh, is going to adopt Jesus, that Jesus gets this lineage. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's telling us the story of Joseph and Mary's sort of awkward engagement period, and then he'll take us on into their honeymoon. Um, but what he wants us to know, what he brings our attention to right away, is that Jesus' birth is fulfilling prophecies laid out hundreds of years prior to his arrival. And so we, 
we read passages like we do in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. Or Isaiah chapter 9, which we're all familiar with this time of year. In verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What incredible prophecies are being fulfilled in this virgin girl's womb. It's a little unexpected, right? You, you read these prophecies and we expect Jesus to be born in a palace. Some of us even expect him to, to show up with a sword in his hand, an army at his back, and an S on his chest to just deliver Israel from all of their political enemies. That's certainly what they expected, but God does the unexpected. Jesus doesn't come in power, but in weakness. That's surprising. The light of the world is hidden in the womb of a virgin. It really is incredible. And the, the, the Messiah, Jesus, is more than we ever thought. He is fully man, yes. The second Adam, our perfect representative. But he's one man with two natures. He's also fully God. He's, he's going to be God with us. This is really, really incredible, this truth of the Incarnation. Think about it. The Almighty Creator, omnipotent God, becomes vulnerable as the man, Jesus. God the Son, Jesus Christ, agreed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past that in order to save humanity, He would swim in amniotic fluid nurse at the breast of his mother, endure scraped knees and bruised elbows, that he would become hungry and thirsty. He agreed that he would experience temptation and testing, that he'd suffer the bitterness of betrayal and the horrors of the cross. He agreed to suffer under the weight of God's wrath that He might save men. I mean, this is the miraculous love of God. This is perhaps the supreme miracle of Christianity. The immortal becomes mortal. God becomes one of us. So that He might die for us and save us from our sins. Now, friends, we get it wrong if we try to isolate the incarnation from the atonement. 
if we try to split apart Christmas and the crucifixion. The two go together. The reason for Christmas is the crucifixion. The reason God had to become a man was so that He could become killable. So that He could absorb the wrath of God towards sinners like you and me in our place as our substitute. Jesus becomes vulnerable for us so that He might rescue us. The only way we can enter into right relationship with God is by becoming vulnerable like Jesus and entrusting ourselves fully to Him. Friends, Christian, non-Christian, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus. Adore Him if you are a Christian day after day. Cause, allow your gratitude and your joy in Christ to, to grow and swell. If you are a non-Christian, I encourage you to come for the first time. Jesus is, is not pointing His finger at you, red-faced, arms crossed, and lips pursed. Now the position that's most natural to Jesus is His arms wide open. Welcoming. Ready to give you a hug and a cup of coffee. Right? This is Jesus' posture. He is gentle and humble at heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And He exercises lordship for your joy. Jesus can give rest to your restless heart. Jesus is the one you have been longing for. Come and rest in Him. Church, come and let us adore Him together week after week, day after day. He is worthy. He is the King. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the King by bringing our attention to His fulfillment of prophecy. Let's take a quick look at Joseph's situation, though, quicker than last week when we were together. Remember, Joseph is in a situation that, uh, on the one hand, if he divorces Mary, he will be able to uphold his sterling reputation. But on the other hand, if he wants to obey God, he'll have to marry her and thus lose his sterling reputation. Right? His family will be the object of scorn and shame if he chooses to obey God and marry Mary. I mean, what would you do in Joseph's position? Unwed wife, pregnant with a child that's not yours. You can, you can keep your good name and divorce her, or you can give up your good name and obey God. What would you do? Or maybe better, we should ask, uh, what do you do? Do you trust God with your family and your reputation? Have you, right now in your life, been willing to obey God at the expense of your reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus when it brings to you social shame and perhaps costs you your dreams. 
This is what this is what it cost Joseph and Mary. Their plans got flipped upside down. Christmas ruined their lives from one perspective. I wonder, has Christmas yet ruined your life? Has God flipped your life upside down? Has He changed the course of your life? Is your hope in Jesus or in your dreams and a demand-free life? And Jesus demands that all who would come to Him would follow Him with their whole lives. Joseph decides to obey God. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Joseph listens to and obeys God. What a great example for us. Listen to God and obey Him. Love Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey me. And the only way that we get to, to obeying God is if we listen to His Word. Listening is an expression of loving. A failure to listen is a failure to love. For example, you know this to be true in your own relationships. I'm just going to use your own marriage, and this is strictly hypothetical, right? So I may, I may or may not know what it's like to be reading a book or watching a football game or sending a text message at the same time when my wife is speaking to me, right? And I may or may not, again, this hypothetical, know, know what it's like a little bit later for, for me to say, well, well, hey, what do you think about dinner on Friday night or something or the other? And for her to, uh, you know, were you even listening to me? I mean, that's, a, that's what I imagine it would be like. A failure to listen is a failure to love. We give our attention to and our ear to those things that we value and love and appreciate. And so here's the application. Here's the question. What do you listen to most in your life? Is it the newspaper, Twitter, or social media? What do you listen to? Or maybe better yet, Christian, do you listen to God's Word? You give yourself to sermons and to reading and to prayer. A failure to listen is a failure to love. But, but you don't know how busy I am. That's not, that's not really true. I, I do love God. I just, you know, I don't have enough time to read my Bible. I wake up, I, I shower, there's this and that. I'm so I'm just busy, busy busy. You have time for what you value most in life. And you listen to what you love. 
to listen to God's Word. Joseph sets an excellent example for us here. He, he listens, he doesn't talk back, he obeys. He hears and does as the Lord commands. And the Lord's going to ask a lot of Joseph. He, he asks Joseph to take Mary as his wife, as she is pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a big thing. He also asks Joseph to move quite a bit. Not just himself, but his whole family. He's already arranged, used the Roman Empire as a pawn to call for a census to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, which is where Christ will be born. But he also moves him later on in his early life, when Jesus is about the age of a toddler. But look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, this is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then jo Joseph gets moved Again, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph and Mary, they really have to reorient their lives. I mean, they, they have that kind of awkward engagement, they get married, and now they are on an adventure of a honeymoon, right? Egypt, and then back into Israel, and then eventually into the backwood towns of Nazareth. You know, why all this movement? Couldn't God have just killed Herod and you know, put him in a little bit of a cardiac arrest? Why the movement? The answer is that God was accomplishing something in the geographical movement of Jesus and Joseph. So he's, he's born in Bethlehem. And this fulfills the word from Micah, which we read this morning. Do you remember it? Matthew or Micah 5. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord his God, they will live securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus is the shepherd king who is to be born in Bethlehem. He is the bread of life born in the house of bread. House of bread is what Bethlehem means. It brings life to his people. Jesus is born in Bethlehem because that's where the Messiah is to be born. 
And Jesus flees to Egypt to fulfill this prophecy, Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew's doing two things here with this prophecy from Hosea 11.1. You kind of go, it doesn't make sense. That's not really what Hosea is talking about in context. But Matthew's really appealing to the whole typological trajectory of the Exodus. That was a fancy way of saying. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a new Moses and as new Israel. Right? Remember, Moses is a baby and the Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph or Joseph's God, says, we're going to kill all the Hebrew infants because they're growing. There's too much, there's a population boom. They might overtake us. Kill all the babies. Moses has his life preserved. His mother keeps him alive. She puts him in an ark and puts him into the water. Pharaoh's daughter comes and draws Moses out of the water. That's what Moses' name means, drawn out of the water. And she takes him into Pharaoh's house. His life is preserved. And so we, we see Jesus having his life preserved as a new and better Moses. And that motif will continue throughout Matthew. And we also see Jesus as a, a new Israel. Israel goes down into Egypt for safety during the famine. Then after things go a little haywire and there's the enslavement, God leads his people out of Egypt so that they might worship him. Jesus is going to be the new Moses who leads his people out of slavery to sin and into sonship so they might worship God appropriately. See what Matthew's doing over and over again. Jesus is the leader of Israel. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better David. He is the true and better Adam. He's qualified to be the forever king. He is who I'm telling you He is. And He brings blessing to all the nations. This brings us to the Magi. First, Nazareth. Why does Jesus go to Nazareth? You see Matthew there says, uh, He went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So if you're really a biblical scholar and you go and look for a prophecy in the Old Testament telling you that the Messiah will come from Nazareth, you will look in vain. There is no such prophecy. So you go, well, what is Matthew doing? And the consensus seems to be uh, that he is picking up on this general theme that the Messiah will be despised. This theme that runs through the prophecy. The Messiah is going to be despised by his own people and come from a place that is despised. And, and Nazareth, it fits the bill there. Nazareth was uh, a place that not many people liked. You can think of um, the backwoods version of New Jersey or Cleveland. Right? Nobody, nobody wanted to be there. You remember in John when Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, I've found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a place of lowly people. The despised. He's going to be called a Nazarene. He's going to be rejected. Also, maybe the case that Matthew's picking up on this word Nazarene sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for branch, which Isaiah utilizes uh, as an image to teach us about the Messiah who is to come in Isaiah 11. This is what we read there in the first few verses. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him 
a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And so we can see Matthew is saying Jesus is the King. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one you've been waiting on. And He brings blessing to the nations. The nations will come to worship Him. And He gives us that illustration at the beginning of chapter 2. Let's look at it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So about two years has probably passed since Jesus was born initially. And these Magi, these pagan astrologers, sometimes called wise men, have been making their way to come to this infant king. They come to Jerusalem and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem's troubled because Herod is a little crazy. And if somebody shows up and says, where's the real king? Uh, That's a threat. And so they're worried what what Herod's going to do. They're troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, this is Micah, right? You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men, the Magi, secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod's putting on a bit of a ruse here. He doesn't really want to worship Jesus. We know that. You just drop down to verse 16. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, God had told him, I skipped a verse, we'll go back to verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that's the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. Then verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. This was probably around 30-ish kids, since Bethlehem was not that big of a place. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod has no interest in worshiping Jesus. He understands that Jesus is a threat to his rule over the kingdom. And so he's trying to figure out, all right, all you wise men, you prophets, scribes, come here. Where is the Messiah to be born? And they're at Bethlehem. We figured it was Bethlehem. Interestingly, these religious leaders seem apathetic about the potential arrival of their Messiah. They disappear from the scene. Herod, though, is interested. He, He wants to put the pagan astrologers in his employ and use them to figure out Jesus' location so that he might kill his competition. 
This is pretty intense. The Lord warns the Magi to go home another way, not to return to Herod. Herod figures that out, and then he orders the genocide of all the children of Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. This fits pretty well with what we historically know of Herod. Caesar Augustus famously quipped about him that he would rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. At this point in history, Herod has become quite notorious for his ruthless protection of his power. By the time Jesus was born, Herod had murdered his favorite wife, arranged for a drowning accident for a brother-in-law, and hired assassins to strangle two of his sons. He even had this plan that upon his death, that those who were reporting to him were to go out and kill the most famous leaders in the land, the most popular people, so that the whole land would be filled with this deluge of grief. That command wasn't carried out, thankfully. The point here is Herod is an evil man. He is opposed to the rule and reign of Jesus. He is self-interested. And he is anti-Christ. Much like Athaliah, who we considered together on Friday night. He's willing to kill to hold on to his power. Likewise, we look at Herod as we looked at Athaliah. We recognize we too are left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, anti-Christ, self-interested, self-ruling, haters of God. It's really easy to to look at the Athaliahs and the Herods of the Bible and to say, they are so evil, they deserve the judgment of God. Justice now, let justice roll down like waters. It's much harder to take a step back and say, this is how God views my sin. From the smallest of my sins to the greatest of them. All of them worthy of judgment. Eternally worthy of judgment. See friends, within us all there is a a little Herod that when confronted with Christmas throws a fit. See Christmas, you haven't understood it until it's offended you. Because Christmas says you don't rule your own life. Jesus is in charge. And if you want to be right with God, you must step off the throne of your life and bend the knee to the true King. And apart from God's grace, when we hear that, the the little Herod within says, No! No, 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 this is my life. I will follow my dreams and follow my heart and do what brings me joy because it's my life and you can't have it. Jesus, in his kindness and in his redeeming grace, saves people like that. He saves those who would be self-absorbed, 
self-concerned, those of us who know what it is to want to rule our own lives. We see the cross of Christ. see the incarnation and the atonement and the resurrection. And we recognize who God is and how He has loved us to the depths of the cross and, and, and to the heights of heaven. We see the love of Christ and the Spirit makes us alive. We, we believe. Jesus saves His people. He saves all who believe. He saves wicked Athaliahs. And He saves Herods. He saves us. He saves any who will come. And indeed, one day when Jesus returns, He will bring judgment. He came the first time to bear judgment for His people. And when He returns the second time, it will be to bring judgment to all who persist in rebellion against Him, as Herod did. We don't want to be like Herod. We want to be like these pagan astrologers. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These pagan astrologers come to worship the king. They're not insiders. They weren't the holders of the scripture. They were outsiders. They were looking to the stars to guide their lives. They were idolaters. God met them where they were. By way of some supernatural phenomenon, grace intruded into their lives. And God began drawing them to Himself as they followed the star all the way to the Scriptures, which told them that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You're talking about how neat this is in Sunday school this morning, that natural revelation, creation, can teach us about God. They can get us part of the way to God. They can get us asking questions wow, this is beautiful. Who do I give thanks for this? Surely there is a creator. They can get us part of the way to God, but they can't get us the whole way there. The Bible, God's Word, is what gets us to salvation. God's Word is what gets us to Christ. God comes to these pagan astrologers, draws them to Himself, and brings them into the worship of Christ Jesus. They come with their belated baby shower gifts, not so that we might speculate about what each of the gifts means. The, the point of them giving the gifts is their pledging of loyalty to King Jesus. Their acknowledgement of His rule and His reign. You see what Matthew has done in recounting for us this incredible history of God's providence in the world. He's verifying Jesus' identity. Jesus is the, the son of David. He's the promised king who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. We have all nations worshiping Jesus at his birth. The point Matthew strings out, Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Go 
make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we come to the end of our time together and there, there's a question before us. Will we be like Herod, rejecting the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the true King, and insist on ruling ourselves, living according to our standards rather than God's Word? Or will we be like the pagan astrologers, overcome by grace, drawn to Jesus? Will we lay down our gifts and our lives before the King and worship Him? Will we, like they, see the the star of the Gospel, see Jesus, and come to Him, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? Comfort, joy, love, and peace come only to those who fall down and worship King Jesus. And so, friends, I implore you this morning, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that as Your people, You have revealed Yourself to us, not only in nature, but also in Your Word, and supremely in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank You for the Incarnation. We thank You that God the Son, while never ceasing to be what He was, became what He was not by taking on a second nature to Himself, a human nature. We thank You for the Incarnation. We thank You for the Atonement. That Christ became a man so that He might die for the sins of men. And Lord, we thank You for the Resurrection, which proves to us the efficacy of the cross the success of your plan to redeem sinful men. We thank you that Jesus is risen and that he will raise up from the dead all who have faith in him. He is our hope. He is our king. We pray that you would help us to follow him as those pagan astrologers followed that star. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.